Well, turn in your Bible to Leviticus 15. <clears throat> We're continuing this morning our series to live in the presence of God. And as we walk through the book of Leviticus, we're seeing that living in the presence of God is something that um, takes caution, takes care. And this morning, we're finishing the section of the book of Leviticus, chapters 11 through 15, which deal with the laws of being clean or unclean. Let me just kind of begin with a, um, a little bit of a review, just to set the stage, set the context for us. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, and so the first five books of the Bible we call the Pentateuch. They kind of are one unit together. So Leviticus is planted right in the middle. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as you follow the story along, what you find is that Leviticus um, really is the focal point of those five books. In the middle of the book of Exodus, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai, and everything that we read from the middle of Exodus all the way through Leviticus and halfway through Numbers, that whole section takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so God is giving instructions to his people about how to worship him. He gives them his law. He gives them instructions on building the tabernacle. And they do that. They assemble the tabernacle here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then when it comes to the book of Leviticus, God's giving the instructions. And so the first five chapters deal with sacrifices, all the different kinds of sacrifices, what they mean and how they are to be brought. Then chapters six through nine deal with instructions for the priests. And at the end of chapter nine, now that the tabernacle has been built and the instructions have been given, it's time for the worship in the tabernacle to begin. And so the priests offer the sacrifices and fire comes out from the presence of God and consumes the sacrifices. And everything is the way it's supposed to be, just like in the Garden of Eden, except that just like in the Garden of Eden, it doesn't stay that way. As soon as chapter 10 opens on the very same day, Nadab and Abihu, two of the priests, bring something unclean, strange fire, into God's presence. And God's fire again comes out and consumes, but this time he doesn't consume the sacrifice. He consumes Nadab and Abihu. And so we have this problem. It's a twofold problem. On the one hand, what do we do with a tabernacle, this holy place that has now been defiled by dead bodies? We've got dead bodies in the tabernacle. What are we going to do about this? And secondly, it's been made dramatically evident to everyone that it matters how you come into God's presence. So Leviticus, that's Leviticus 10. Leviticus 16 is going to really deal with the answer to those questions. It's the Day of Atonement. But in between there, chapters 11 through 15 are giving us instructions about what is clean and unclean, what can and can't come into God's presence. And so the theme throughout there is wholeness of life. When something's out of order or doesn't represent the fullness of life, then that person is considered unclean. That's not a moral judgment. Clean and unclean is not about having done something wrong. Instead, it's like a giant object lesson that God is using to communicate something about himself and about what's necessary for someone to be able to come into his presence. 
So this morning, as we read Leviticus 15, and as we think back over what we've seen in chapters 11 through 15, we'll consider what it means to encounter a holy God. Now, uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of focus in, after I read Leviticus 15, on two attributes of God. The first one is the one that I think this chapter is really aiming at. The second one is a little bit more broad, and it has to do with all of 11 through 15, and it's God's holiness. And so we want to think about that and the implications of the fact that God is holy. So this morning we're kind of hitting Leviticus 15, but we're also summarizing and wrapping up this entire section. As we read Leviticus 15, you'll see that this is about bodily discharges, most often from sexual organs. Now, remember, this is not communicating about right and wrong. Clean and unclean is telling us something about God and about what it takes to come into his presence. Now, I'll read the entire chapter and then uh, we'll talk about it. So Leviticus chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This is the law of uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is, un who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Now, let me pause there for a second. The word that in our Bible is translated spit uh, is more accurately probably translated slobber or drool. <laughs> okay, so... The idea here, I, what I don't want us to get confused with, is really the idea of motive. Spitting is intentional. Everything in this chapter is kind of just stuff that happens. It, it, it's not, it, the chapter's not dealing with motive or intent. Spit kind of sounds like you're, you're doing something on purpose, some, and that, like, that's what God's getting at. That's not really what he's getting at. So don't think in terms of motive, just think in terms of things that happen, okay? Verse 9, and any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean, and whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. <clears throat> Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, and an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken. And every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. The priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. 
And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her men and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby, also for her who is unwell, with her menstrual impurity, that is, for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. Well, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, out of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible, that Leviticus chapter 12 was probably in the bottom 10 of preaching passages, and I think Leviticus 15 ranks below Leviticus 12, most likely. It's just one of those passages. But what I want to do is kind of summarize the basic idea of what I think God is trying to communicate with this particular set of rules and then have that point us to his character. So the idea here is that those who have a discharge of some kind do not, at that point, represent wholeness of life. Now, why is that? Well, a discharge, to put it in a way that sounds a little bit more crude, but just to speak plainly, it's a leak of some kind. There's something leaking from the body, okay? Now, my car this week had a leak. I had brake fluid, that, I had a brake line that went, and so brake fluid came out, and, you know, that caused problems. And th th this is even different than that for, for the reason that the things we're talking about are really not, like, for the most part, things that shouldn't happen. A lot of this is just normal, the way God's designed our bodies to work. So why, then, does it not represent wholeness of life? Well, the person with the leak is not whole because something that could be considered part of them 
is no longer contained in them. So let's use the example of the slobber or drool, okay? Your saliva contains your DNA. It's part of you. But once it's out of you, now there's this thing that had been part of you that's no longer contained in you. There's the person, and then there's separate from them, the thing that they leaked. That doesn't happen with God. And I don't mean physical leaks. God is perfectly whole. He's never in parts. And the doctrine is, we actually mentioned this a couple of weeks ago as we talked about the catechism. We're, we're talking about wholeness of life here. But the doctrine that I think this is getting at is that God is simple. It's, it's the doctrine of divine simplicity. James Dolezal explains that divine simplicity simply means that God is not composed of parts. So I mentioned my car. If, if we were to go out in the parking lot and I put my hand on the roof of my car and I said, this is my car. Somebody might say, well, no, it's not. That's the roof of your car. And they would technically be right, right? It's, it's a part of my car. And if I move my hand down, they would say, this is the window of my car. And, and this is the door. And this is the tire. And, and all of those things are parts that together in composite make up my car. God's not like that. We are. We're made of parts. God is not made of parts. God is one. So Herman Boving said, the oneness of God does not only consist in a unity of singularity. In other words, the essence of God is that he is one God but also in a unity of simplicity, which means he doesn't have parts. He's one, he's not plural in his being, there's only one God, but he's one in that he's not composed of parts. He's, he's, he's simple. God's people should be growing in wholeness or holiness. We are composed of parts. So we don't have a simple essence like God does. But we should be becoming more and more like God. Now, not in our essence. That's, that doesn't change. We, we're, we're made of parts, and that's just who we are. But we should be more and more conformed to his image. And if his image is one of perfect unity and simplicity, we should be growing in this, too. Not changing our essence, but there should be, if we can say it this way, less and less in us that deviates from God's perfection, from God's standard. More and more, we should be in alignment with who God is. More and more like him, less and less deviating from him. <clears throat> it may help to, to realize this is why David prays in Psalm 86 that God would unite his heart. Some of you might have a translation if you looked at Psalm 86 that says that God would give him an undivided heart. David wants his heart to be one. 
completely, wholly given over to God. Wholeness of heart. So he actually says, he says, God, unite my heart. And then he says, I will give thanks to God with my whole heart. So God is simple. And I think that's really what this, this passage is getting at. We've, we've seen all these different kind of aspects of clean and unclean. And I think this one is simply saying, at the moment when the person has this leak of whatever kind, it's like this visual, visceral, physical demonstration that they are made of parts. They're not whole. There's something that was part of them that is now not part of them. And so they, they illustrate non-wholeness. And at that point, then, they're unclean because what God says must be the case to come into his presence is that we represent wholeness of life. It's pretty basic, but I think that's what that chapter is getting at. What I really want to get to, then, is for us to think about the bigger picture idea of God's holiness. God is holy. Verse 31 of Leviticus 15 that we read says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. The word in that verse that says separate is the word nazar. It's the word we get Nazarite vow from, not someone from Nazareth. That's different, but a Nazarite vow, someone who has been separated to the Lord for a particular time and purpose. And even the Hebrew word for holy, the word kadosh, it means to be set apart, to be separated. In other words, when we say that God is holy, we're saying that God is unique. He's different. He is other. Louis Burkhoff said, God is absolutely distinct from all of his creatures. He's exalted above them in infinite majesty. In Isaiah 40, verse 25, we read, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So all that God is, is holy. He's holy or unique in, for instance, his love. It's a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His justice is holy justice. So G.H. Kirsten says, holiness is the shining of all his perfections. Now, the one aspect of God's holiness that we typically think of is his moral holiness, that he's perfectly good. He always does what's right. If holiness is separateness or uniqueness, then God can't allow in his presence that which doesn't reflect his holiness. So for example, Moses, when he comes to the burning bush, hears the voice of God saying, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The place was holy because God's presence was there. So the tabernacle was to be a holy place too. Exodus 29, God says, At the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel. It shall be sanctified or made holy by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. 
So the tabernacle is a holy place because that's where God is, where his presence is. As I was reading this week about the holiness of God, I read a chapter out of a book by Joel Beakey, and the chapter was about the holiness of God. And he said a number of things in that chapter that I thought were just well put and helpful. So I'm going to read four sentences to you. These four sentences don't go together. They're from four different places in the chapter. But as we think through what are the implications of the idea that God is holy, I think these are helpful concepts for us to understand. Here's the first one. If he is supremely sacred, then he must honor himself as such and require others to do so, or he would deny himself. In other words, God, if he's holy, if he's unique, if he's the best, if he's the most glorious, then he has to treat himself as that. It would be wrong for God, for instance, to treat you as more important, more glorious than him, because that would be an untruth. So God has to treat himself as the most holy, and not only that, he has to require that of all of his creatures as well. We must treat him as most holy. Second thing he said was this, the moral excellence of God's holiness blazes forth in God's law, which is itself holy and just and good. Romans 7 says that God's law is holy and just and good. God's law is holy because God's holiness blazes forth through the law. So when God says this is clean and this is unclean, it's demonstrating for us what his holiness looks like. Third thing was this. Holiness is defined more narrowly as God's moral purity and settled opposition to all impurity. So not only is God himself morally pure or holy, but he has this settled opposition to anything that's impure, which is why Nadab and Abihu were consumed, which is why unclean things can't come into the presence of God. And then the fourth thing was this. Holiness is, excuse me, sin always dishonors the Holy One, for it's a failure to love Him supremely. Sin dishonors the Holy One because it's a failure to honor Him supremely. When I commit sin, I'm loving something else more than God in that moment. So the law in Leviticus teaches us that to come into God's presence, we must come without impurity. It's one of the great object lessons of all of these clean and unclean laws. That's what they're teaching us. This has significance, by the way, for worship. The Bible talks about worship in terms of coming into God's presence, like coming into the court of a king. You heard that in Psalm 95 that Dave read for us at the beginning of the service today. Let me also read for you uh, Psalm 100. Just listen to the language of how worship is spoken about as coming into God's presence. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. 
and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. If you look around at the church today, much of what passes for worship is trite, light, happy, clappy approaches to God. It lacks the weight of glory that C.S. Lewis talked about, but that's not what we see in Leviticus. Puritan writer Jer Jeremiah Burroughs said, the great reason why people come and worship God in a slight way is because they do not see God in his glory. Let me ask the question this way. If two or three of us this morning were consumed by fire from God, would you come back next week? You would want to know how you can come into God's presence safely. That's in part what Leviticus 11 through 15 is doing. It's telling Israel, if you don't want what happened to Nadab and Abihu to happen to you, then you need to come into God's presence in a way that represents wholeness of life, a way that reflects God. God's glory is his perfection, his holiness. And if we don't see that, what are we worshiping him for? Joseph Piper Jr. said it this way. He said, we worship him because of who he is. One of the reasons, therefore, that our worship totters on the edge of irrelevance is because we do not come into God's presence aware of who he is. Martin Luther, when he was going back and forth with Erasmus, at one point said to Erasmus, he said, your thoughts of God are all too human. And we have that tendency to make God in our image. And these Levitical laws remind us that God is not human. He is unique. He is altogether different. He is holy. Let me give you three things about encountering the holy God that we need to recognize about him, what he does. And the first one is this. The holy God kills. You see it with Nadab and Abihu. Remember, Leviticus 9, God consumes the proper sacrifices. Leviticus 10, he consumes Nadab and Abihu because they brought something unclean. They brought strange fire. And so then Leviticus 11 through 15 gives these distinctions between clean and unclean so that we are sure to represent this wholeness of life when we come into God's presence. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we have this picture of the last judgment. And at the last judgment, things are separated into categories of life and death. For our purposes, think in terms of wholeness of life. All that evidences life stays in God's presence for eternity. And who is that? It's those whose names are written in the book of life. But the rest are thrown into the lake of fire. And it's based on what they've done, on their sin, their uncleannesses. And this is called the second death. 
the barriers and the boundaries that God sets up, for instance, in Leviticus, do two things. They, they illustrate the concept of God's holiness, but they're also this gracious protection for God's people. They're an illustration in this way. The tabernacle was like a model of the world, and the center of it, the Holy of Holies, is where God's presence was. So as you moved out from there, you had decreasing levels of holiness. So at any point in time, an Israelite knew where they were in relation to God's holiness. And so if you had something in your life that caused you to be unclean, whether it was something that we read about in Leviticus 15 or, or something that we read about in one of the previous chapters, it would take you further away from the tabernacle. It might even take you outside, outside the camp. It's like the you are here sticker on the mall map. It always was letting you know where you are in relation to God's holiness. And when you were clean, then you could come into his presence. But God's boundaries are also this gracious protection for God's people. Exodus 19, verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So there's boundaries, there's borders to keep them from violating it. Psalm 24, the psalmist asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer is, he who has clean hands, clean, and a pure heart, a whole heart. And ultimately, there's only one who fits that description, and it's Jesus. We have gracious boundaries in our world, even on a grand scale. You think of things like a demilitarized zone or some kind of danger zone or a biohazard zone. And these, these are things that are, are boundaries set up for your protection. Now, uncleanness in Leviticus was not, remember, necessarily sinful per se, but it pictured sin because it, it was something that didn't measure up to the standard of wholeness of life. And so that's why it entailed separation from God. Separation that the Bible ultimately says is what death is, is that final separation from God. So the holy God kills. But not only that, the holy God heals. God heals his people of their sinfulness. And he does this through the work of Christ. So I want you to just listen to how some of the biblical writers describe this. First of all, Peter, this is 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then catch this, by his wounds, you have been healed. We see it all through the book of Hebrews. Christ enters God's presence on our behalf to make atonement for us. So in Hebrews 9, Verses 11 and 12, and then verse 24 says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, so let me just pause, what that's saying is, Christ entered the presence of God himself that the tabernacle on earth was a picture of. Okay, the tabernacle was, was a was an earthly physical model of a greater 
heavenly spiritual reality. And Jesus enters the real thing, the presence of God. That's where he offers the sacrifice of himself, okay? He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Eternal, that's different than Leviticus, because the, the sacrifices and everything that happened in Leviticus happened over and over and over and over. Jesus secures an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's how we are healed of our sinfulness. So the results of that, the author of, of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I asked a few minutes ago, if fire fell down from heaven and consumed two or three of us this morning, would you come back next week? You would want to know you, you probably say, I think next week we might join the live stream. You would want to know, can I come back safely? Can I come back with confidence? Well, because of Jesus, we can enter God's presence with confidence. You don't have to worry that what happened to Nadab and Abihu is going to happen to you because Jesus has already taken care of it. You are healed by him of your uncleannesses. So you come into God's presence whole, clean, with confidence because of what he has done. God's burning holiness overcomes our sinfulness and its resulting death. Why is it that we can draw near with confidence? Hebrews 10, 10, we have been sanctified, cleansed, made whole, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then nine verses later, the author again tells us that this gives us confidence to come into God's presence. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. But confidence is different than casually. The author of Hebrews goes on then in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, to challenge us, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The same God who consumed Nadab and Abihu is the God that we have gathered to worship this morning. We have come into the presence of that God, but we come healed of our sin disease by Christ. Not only does God heal his people, ultimately God heals the world. In Revelation 4 and 5, John has a vision of the throne room of God. And before the throne, verse 6 tells us, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, we know from what we've seen in the past that the sea, with all of its 
danger and chaos is a picture of chaos and death and sin and forces opposed to God. But here in Revelation 4, it's a sea of glass. It's perfectly still because God has put an end to the chaos and sin and death. He's brought order. And the picture of the end is that of the river of, a water of, of the water of life, bringing life and healing with God's people in his presence. Listen to the language of Revelation 22, verses 1 through 4. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Why will his name be on their foreheads? Well, the high priest in the tabernacle had that nameplate that said, Holy to the Lord, and we will be holy to the Lord. The question then is, well, how do we get from here to there? How do we get to the place where the whole world is healed and, and everything is in alignment with God? What happens to bring order to this world? And the short answer is, God sends us with the gospel and all of its implications out into the world. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to see that the holy God sends the Holy God kills, the Holy God heals, and then the Holy God sends. Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> this is a fairly well-known scene as Isaiah has this vision. Let me read for you, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So here, this is in the presence of God. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So here we have this vision of the holiness of God. And Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God in his holiness. Verse 5. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost or undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response was to see that he deserved death. The holy God kills. And Isaiah has come into his presence. And so he says, woe is me. And what's the reason? I'm a man of unclean lips. He's come into God's presence with uncleanness. 
and he knows that the holy God kills. Now look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar signifies sacrifice, and it is the sacrifice that heals. Okay. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's uncleanness, his guilt is removed when it's touched by a coal from the altar, the sacrifice. And the result is that his guilt is removed, his sins are atoned for, and so the sacrifice is a sacrifice of atonement. And now verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, and so Isaiah can now represent God because the same God who kills has healed him and now sends him with the word of the Lord. And you realize that we as God's people have also been sent with God's words. Before Jesus ascends, he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king on the throne. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In other words, bring them, make them disciples, bring them into alignment with who God is. Make them whole. Heal the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So they submit to the Lordship of God. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And now they're conduct becomes whole it becomes clean it aligns with god and behold he says i am with you the presence of god with us to the end of the age why is it so important that we see god's holiness why did the Israelites have to go to such lengths to illustrate the clean and the unclean? What is it that God wanted his people to see about him? And what difference does that make in their lives? Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel said, God's holiness is the brightness of all of his perfections. And then he said, God reveals himself as holy in order that the heart of man may continually be filled with deep awe and reverence. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now think about that for a minute. Don't be conformed, shaped by... The passions, the desires that you had when you were ignorant, when you didn't know God, when you didn't see his holiness. Don't act like that. He goes on. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy 
for I am holy. Seeing God's holiness should change the way you live. Seeing God's holiness should cause you to be holy. We should want to reflect God's moral perfection. No, we're not going to be perfect. But we should strive to mirror God's holiness. Thomas Watson said that our holiness consists in, now catch this, our suitableness to God's nature and in our subjection to his will. In other words, us becoming holy is us becoming like God, reflecting his holiness. So how do we know what holiness looks like? We have to come to see God in his word. J.C. Ryle wrote that holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. How well does that describe you? May God cause our hearts to be united to his, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. May we be people of his word who see him in his holiness and long to reflect him to this world. And may we see ourselves as sent by him to represent him, making disciples of all nations, nations that come to reflect his holiness, obeying his commands. Lord, I pray this morning that we would come to see you in your holiness and that that would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name.